Well, right when we're there in Isaiah chapter number 64, and I think I forgot uh, to say this, but if you need a Bible, raise your hand. That One of our ushers can get one for you. Uh, if you need a Bible, just put your hand up. I don't know if I said that or not. Uh, we're there in Isaiah 64, and uh, tonight we're just going to walk through the chapter and just make some applications as we go along. And uh, there's only 12 verses in this chapter, so we really don't have to uh, be here very long tonight. And not only that, but I, I preached a little longer, uh, just a tad bit longer than I usually do in the morning. So if we cut out a little early, then we'll be even, and then you don't have to pay me overtime. So we'll, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Well, no. But um, we'll, we won't spend a lot of time tonight. Look at verse 1. The Bible says this, O that thou wouldest rend uh, the heavens. Now that word rend uh, is the word means to tear or to uh, rip apart. Now, if you remember from Isaiah 63, uh, we left off Isaiah 63 on this note of the coming wrath of God and the judgment of God. If you remember, we saw the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ coming down on a white horse and treading uh, the people in the battle of Armageddon is what we saw in Isaiah 63. And here at the beginning of Isaiah 64, we kind of continue that thought. He says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down And then he says this, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. The Bible says, and I don't really, to be honest with you, understand what this means, because I've never seen it and you've never seen it. But the Bible says when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the mountains will flow down at thy presence. That's kind of easy for us to maybe grasp or understand. But the Bible says that he's going to rend the heavens. He's going to tear the heavens open. Now, I don't know what that looks like, you know, to, to, to kind of open up the heavens. And I don't know if the idea there is that he's going to open up the heavens into maybe the spirit world or the unseen world, the, the world that we don't see, you know. And we know that right now there's angels and devils and, and all of those things. I'm not sure if that's what that means. I don't know what rending the heavens looked like. But this is a theme that's found throughout the Bible about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 2, the Bible says, And when the melting fire burneth, and fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Here's another thing about the coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back, the nations will tremble at his presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, thou camest down. Notice, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. So the Bible tells us there that the mountains flowed down in verse number 3. The Bible tells us that the mountains might flow down in verse number 1. The Bible tells us that he ran the heavens. Now you're there in the book of Isaiah. Keep your finger there because that's the text for tonight. But go with me to the book of uh, Nahum. Nahum chapter number 1. Now if you're in the book of Isaiah, you're going to just keep traveling towards the end of the Old Testament. You're going to go past Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Got it? You're going to need to get all the way to Nahum. It's one of the small minor prophets uh, towards the end of, of the Old Testament. Nahum chapter number 1. And look at verse number 5. Nahum, right after the book of Micah. You got Jonah, Micah, uh, Nahum. Nahum chapter number 1, and look at verse number 5. Nahum 1.5, notice what the Bible says. The mountains quake at him. Talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. Do you see that? The Bible says, and I don't know what that means or what that's going to look like, but we know this, that when Jesus comes, the mountains are going to quake, the hills are going to melt, they're going to subside. It says, the mountains quake at him, the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Again, talking about the wrath of God. 
And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Go to the book of Revelation, last book in the New Testament, Revelation chapter number 6. Let me just show you one verse, Revelation chapter number 6 and verse number 14. Revelation 6.14. Revelation 6.14 says this, And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. See, you got, you got to understand, and I don't really grasp this, you know, but the Bible teaches when Jesus steps back on this earth, the Bible teaches that every mountain and every island will be moved. There'll be a, a, a great earthquake. And I, I don't know that earthquake's even the right word. There's going to be a shaking of the heavens, a shaking of the earth, to the point that in Revelation 6.14, the Bible tells us the mountains and the islands are moved out of their places. The Bible tells us the rocks are thrown down by him in Nahum 1.6. The Bible tells us the mountains quake at him, that hills melt, the earth is burned. The heavens in Isaiah 64.1, he rends the heavens. And then in Revelation 6.14, he tells us the heavens depart as a scroll. There's this idea that the heavens will be removed. The heavens will be parted. I don't know what that means, and I don't know what that looks like. Uh, you know, I, I love uh, the song, It Is Well With My Soul. That fourth verse, you know, we sing, And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll in reference to that. The trump shall resound, which proves that back, you know, when they wrote that song, they, they associated the second coming of Christ with the trumpet sounding, which is also, uh, you know, the rapture. So that, that puts the whole, you know, pre-trib rapture has been the historical position of Christians down, you know, just in that song. But the idea is that the Bible teaches that the heavens are going to... And I, I don't know what that looks like. And I don't think anybody really knows what that looks like. But, but you know, I, I can't wait to see what that means. I think we're going to see it and we're going to be like, oh, that's what he meant. You know, like the, the heavens are rolled back. You know, the clouds are rolled back. The heavens are rent. Go back to Isaiah 64, look at verse number 4. Now here's what's interesting about Isaiah 64. In verses 1 to 3, he talks about what's coming, but he talks about what's coming for unbelievers. He says that the heavens are going to be rent. He says that the mountains are going to flow down. He says that the, the nations are going to tremble at his presence. He says that the, they're going to come down. The mountains will flow, flow down at his presence. But then in verse number 4, he kind of contrasts that. In verses 1 to 3, he tells us, here's what's coming for unbelievers. But then in verse number 4, he tells us, here's what's coming for believers. Notice verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, he says, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for thee. So in verses 1 through 3, he's telling us this is what's going to happen to the world. The, the, the mountains are going to melt. The heavens are going to be rent. The nations are going to tremble at his presence. But then in verse 4, he says, but I've got something prepared. He said, men have not heard, nor perceived by ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Now this, this verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, uh, in verse number 9. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul quotes it, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, in verse number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Notice what the Bible says. But, that, but as it is written, 
I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Now you look down at uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9 while I read for you from Isaiah 64.4 and notice the similarities. Isaiah 64.4 says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear. That's what Paul said, nor ear heard. Then it says, Neither hath the eye seen. That's what Paul said, I hath not seen. O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. What Paul said was, uh, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I want you to notice what it's talking about, the things that God has prepared for us. Talking about heaven. Talking about what's coming, what's in store for us. And notice what he says. But, uh, uh, but as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. That's something that's not in Isaiah, but that was added, you know, the Holy Ghost added it here in 1 Corinthians. And here's what he's saying. Not only have you not seen, I mean, the, think about the best thing you could think of, and, 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 you know, the best thing you've ever heard, the best thing you've ever seen. He says, not only have you not seen, not only have you not heard, but he said, neither have entered into the heart of man. The things which God has prepared for him. You've never even thought about the things that God has ready for us in heaven. You know, sometimes people get this idea like, when I get to heaven, you know, I'm going to have this and I'm going to have that. I'm going to have this car. I'm going to have that house. But you've never even seen. You've never even heard. You've never even thought. It's never entered into your heart the things that God has prepared for you. But here's what's interesting about those things in 1 Corinthians 2.9. I want you to notice what the Bible says. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, and neither have entered into the heart of man the things. Now, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, uh, I, would, I would circle that word things. The things which God has prepared for them that love him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in those things. What are those things? Is that a nice house? Is that a nice boat? Is that a nice car? Is that nice food? And I, I'm, you know, we'll have mansions in heaven and we'll have great food in heaven and all those things. But notice verse number 10. But God hath revealed them unto us. Now he says, he says, I have not seen, ear hath not heard. He said, neither is it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But then he says this about those things, verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. Revealed what? The things, because notice, for the Spirit searcheth all things. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, uh, you know, just, just draw a line from the word things in verse number 9 to the word thing there in verse number 10. He says, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep, notice this word, things of God. You know, circle that word things, the first time the word things appears in, in verse 10, and circle the word, uh, the second time the word things appears in verse number 10, and draw a line, because we're talking about the same things here. Notice verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man? Now, the, that, that things there, don't, don't write yet, that things, that's a separate thing, okay? Because notice in verse 9 it says, the things which God hath prepared for uh, them. In verse 10 it says, all things, yea, the deep things of God. In verse number 11, though, it says, for what man knoweth the things of a man? All right, so we have the things of God versus the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God. Do you see that? 
So if I'm not confusing you, you want to draw a line from the last thing in verse 10 to the second thing in verse number 11, all right? And that's the concept that he's saying. So the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Here's what he's saying. Your eye hasn't seen it, your ear hasn't heard it, hasn't entered into your heart the things that God has prepared for you. He says, the things, he said, the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the, the deep things of God. Then he says this, even so the things of God knoweth no man. He said, you, have, you don't, he said, the Spirit revealed it, but you don't know it. He said, in fact, it, it searcheth no man, is, is what he says there uh, in verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man, which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things. Do you see that? If you don't mind, don't mind your Bible, just circle that word things. Draw a line from the last thing in verse 11 to the first thing in verse 12. Notice that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, verse 13, which things, you see this? Also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What, what are the things we're talking about? We're talking about the Word of God. He says, he says in verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. By the way, that's why we don't read commentaries. That's why we don't read devotionals. That's why we don't write and, and listen and get writings from men because we don't learn from men. We, it's not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, uh, notice verse 14, but the natural man, the unsaved man, receiveth not the what? Things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Here's, here's what I'm trying to make. In verse 13 and 14, no one would dispute the fact that the things that are referred to is referring to the Word of God. But if you follow it back to verse number 9, when in verse 9 he says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. If you follow it back from verse 13 and 14, you will find that the things that the natural man receives not, the things that are spiritual things, it's the same things that God has prepared for, for us. See, when you get to heaven, the best part of heaven is not going to be the house you live in. The best part of heaven is not going to be the car you drive, if you if we even drive a car. The best part of heaven is that we're going to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to take the word and he's going to begin to reveal to us the things that were already in the Bible. He's going to begin to teach us the word of God. And here's, here's the best part. There's going to be things, and here's what you and I are going to say. I never saw that. I never heard that. I never even thought and never entered into my heart the things that I have learned from God. See, the best thing about heaven is that we're going to learn the Word of God in a way that we've never learned it before. That's why we do nine chapters a day. You know why? Because guess what you're going to be doing in heaven? Reading the Bible. Guess what you're going to be doing in heaven? Studying God's Word. Guess what you're going to be doing in heaven? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is going to preach to us in that general assembly of the believers. You say, you say you know, do we really need three services a week? Look, this is just boot camp for heaven, because guess what we're going to do in heaven? Have church. Guess what we're going to do in heaven? You know, sing praises. Guess what we're going to do in heaven? Read the Bible, study the Bible, learn the Bible. You might want to get used to it. Here's what you're not going to do in heaven. Watch TV. Play video games. You know, you know, just be entertained. Here's what you're not going to do in heaven. Facebook. There's no Facebook in heaven. 
If you're on Facebook, you're, you're down there. You know what I mean? You're not going to be on YouTube. You're not going to be surfing the, the net. So just get in a habit of reading the Bible every day because that's what we're going to do in heaven. Amen. The things that he's prepared for us are the things in the word of God. The things that we learn comparing spiritual things uh, with spiritual. Go back to Isaiah 64. The best part of heaven is going to be to, to learn from Jesus. See, see, here on earth, you're stuck with people like me, you know. You're stuck with, and, and you know, there's good pastors and good preachers out there. And praise the Lord for everyone who's trying to do the best they can to study the Bible and preach the Bible as they see it. But in heaven, I mean, you're going to get, there, there will be no better sermons than those from Jesus Christ. There will be no better teaching than that from the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Isaiah 64. Look at verse number 6. Notice what he says. And this is, verse 6 is probably one of the most, a really well-known verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, now I want you to notice what the Bible says here, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, referring to the fact that we're all going to die, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The Bible teaches here, that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, here, here's what you need to understand about the importance of that verse. Go with me to the book of Titus in, in, the, in the New Testament. If you had your place there in 1 Corinthians, you go past 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. You find those T books, they're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. And here's what you need to understand, okay? Often I'll, people will ask me this question, and they'll say, what is the difference between you know, your religion and all the other religions? And they'll say, there's so many thousands of religions out there. There's so many beliefs out there. How can you know that yours is right? But here's what you need to understand. There are not thousands of religions out there. There's thousands of names and thousands of things that people may think are religion, but when you boil it all down, there are two belief systems out there. You either believe that you are saved by the grace of God and by absolutely no work or no merit or no righteousness of your own, or you believe that you are working your way to heaven. Those are the only two belief systems. Now, most people are going to say, well, we don't believe in work salvation. But when you really press them on the issue, that's what it gets down to. A couple of, uh, uh, I think last week, I was out soul winning with with Brother Peter, and we were talking to a, a Muslim man. And he, we, were, we were talking to him and just kind of, and, and, and he, he got a little frustrated. And, and I think he felt like we didn't really understand what he was saying, although we completely understood what he was saying. And he's like, no, no, you don't, you don't get it. And, and this, this is what he said to me. And Brother Peter's here, so he can prove what I'm saying. You can tell if I'm lying, right, brother? This is what he said. He said, let me try to explain to you what we believe in Islam. And he said, imagine that you get to heaven and God puts all your righteousness on one side and all your, you know, bad deeds on the other side. And if there's more good deeds on the one side, and he said, and God's going to add his grace and his mercy to your righteousness, which I don't even know what that means, but he says, you know, God's going to, it's like he's going to add a little more to it. But he says, hopefully if there's just more good deeds on, on one side than on the other side, then you'll go to like a good place. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, that's what every religion believes. You know, and he's like, oh, you know, that's what, and he's trying to tell me, like, this is what Islam believes. It's different than all other religions. But here's what's interesting. I was out soul winning yesterday with Brother Johnny, and we were talking to Jehovah's Witness. 
And this Jehovah's Witness got all frustrated. And he thought that I wasn't understanding what he was saying. And here's what he said, and I'm not joking. Here's what he said. No, no, let me explain to you what we believe as Jehovah's Witnesses. We just believe that if God puts all your righteousnesses on one side and you've done enough, then you'll like not, you know, you won't go to the lake of fire, which they believe lasts like a minute anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But he, and, he, and here's what I thought. He basically explained to me the exact same thing that the Muslim did. But if you talk to a Catholic, they're going to tell you the same thing. They're going, to, they're going to say, well, you do enough good things, you get catechized, you get you know, confessional booths, you get baptized, you do all these good things. But you talk to a Mormon, they're going to tell you the exact same thing. If you do enough good things, then maybe God will let you into heaven. And every single one of those people will tell you that it's not just them. It's also their God. It's also Jesus. It's also this. But when it boils down to it, they say it's your righteousness. But here's the problem with that. The Bible says your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. See, it doesn't matter how many righteousnesses you have, they're worthless. Are you there in Titus 3? Look at verse number 5. Notice what the Bible says. Titus 3, 5. Titus 3, 5 says this. Not, not, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. See, the Bible says, if you're saved, it's not by anything you've done. It's not by the works of righteousness which you have done. He says, according to his mercy, he saved us. Go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 4. Romans uh, chapter number 4, you're there in Titus, just go backwards. Uh, Romans 4, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans Romans chapter number 4. And and I know you know this, but I, I feel like we really need to just... Talk about this from time to time because people are going to come to in our church and they don't understand this and they, they, they don't grasp this. And because here's the thing, all other religions are teaching the opposite. They're saying it is of works. It is of righteousness. You do. And here's what they say. They say, well, it's not enough to just believe on Jesus. You also have to do your part. And they'll say, no, 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 we're not saying it's works. We're saying it's Jesus and what he did on the cross. But, of course, you've got to live a good life. I was talking to a man yesterday after the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he said, and he said to me, well, you know, he's like, you, you have to have works be part of your salvation. He said, the works don't save you, but the works prove that you're saved. And he said, it's not, I don't believe the works save you, but if the works aren't there, then, you didn't, then you're not saved. And I said, okay, so if, if there's no works, you're not saved. He said, if there's no works, you're not saved. I said, that sounds like work salvation. He said, no, 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 we're not trusting in our works, but the works prove that you got saved. Well, look at Romans chapter 4, and here's where I took him. Romans chapter 4, look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertained to the flesh, had found. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing here, he's saying, what is it that, because Abraham's a patriarch, Abraham's the one that started this whole ordeal, and he said, well, what is it exactly that Abraham found? What was it that, 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 that got this whole thing started? Verse 2, he says, for if, now that if, that's a big if, all right? Because what he's doing is he's, he's asking a question, but he's not saying he believes this question, and, and that'll be clear in the text. He's just kind of playing the devil's advocate. Paul did that a lot, especially in these letters, because he was kind of writing he, he was writing and kind of answering their questions before they asked the question. He says this, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. He says, If Abraham was justified by the things he did, then he would have something to, the word glory means brag or boast. Now we know the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the what? Glory of God. So we don't have anything to glory about. But here's what he's saying. If Abraham, if it were possible for someone to be justified by the things they did, he would have whereof to glory. Notice, but he answers the question, but not before God. 
because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For what say the scripture? So then he says, okay, well, what does the Bible say? And that's the right question to always ask. Well, what does the Bible say? For what say the scripture? Here's what the Bible says, and he quotes from the book of Genesis. Abraham believed, that's the faith, God and it. And it, what's that it? That's his belief. It was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. Do you see that? Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of death. So if you want to work your way to heaven, then you don't get it by grace. Here's why. Grace is free. Grace, you, don't, you can't earn grace. It's unmerited favor. He says, now to him that worketh is a reward not of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not. Now here's what I want you to see in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. But to him that worketh not. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but to him that worketh a little. It says, but to him that worketh not. This guy did nothing. Never went to church, never got baptized, never read the Bible, did absolutely nothing. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. So here's what this guy did. The only thing he did was he believed. He did no works. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for what? Righteousness. See, so according to Romans 4, 5, is it possible for someone to have no works and believe and be saved according to the Bible? Yes. Is it possible for someone to have no works and be saved according to most false religions? The answer is no. Because they are teaching a works salvation. You're there in Romans. Go to, uh, go, go to 2 Corinthians. You're going to go past 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've got to understand what we believe about this. And here's the thing. You need to understand where you, lie, where you stand on this thing. Because this doctrine of salvation is what determines whether you go to heaven or hell. I mean, I, you know, if you're wrong on the pre-trib, oh, oh well, you know, you're, you're wrong on the pre-trib, you know. You just end up getting your head cut off because you had no clue that it was coming, you know, the tribulation. If you're wrong on all sorts of other things, no big deal. But if you're wrong on this, you miss the boat. So you better make sure you understand what the Bible teaches about salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, notice what the Bible says. For he hath made him, talking about Jesus, that's the context, you can read that later. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. See, here's what you got to understand. And here's, here's what atonement is. Here's what salvation is. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us. Took our sins, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Notice, who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. He never lied. Never had a bad thought. Never broke any of the commandments. When he died, he did not die to pay for his own sins. He died to pay for our sins. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And what's the result? That we, that we might be made the righteousness of man. Is that what it says? No, the righteousness of God in him. See, here's, here's, here's what you got to understand. You will either stand before God clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ you will either stand in the righteousness of God. You will say, I, I could not save myself. I could not earn my salvation. There was nothing I could do to undo the fact that I'm a sinner, but I accepted Jesus Christ. I accepted his gift for salvation. My sin was taken off of me and placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and his righteousness was placed upon me, and I'll be clothed in the righteousness of God. Or you can stand before God in your own righteousness. But here's the problem with your righteousness. They're filthy rags. I don't know about you, 
But go ahead and stand there with your repentance and with your baptism and with your I got to live a good life and with your I stop drinking and with your I stop smoking. You can do that, but you're not going to make it very far. Because the way you get into heaven is to have the righteous. I don't know about you. You make your own decision. But when I stand before God, I don't want to stand in my own righteousness. I want to be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the problem with your righteousness, the problem with my righteousness, is that they're filthy. That's quite a thought. The best thing you ever do, the best thing you ever accomplish, the best moment of your life, God looks at it and says, that righteousness, it's like filthy rags. It's not good enough. You need the righteousness of God. You're there in 2 Corinthians? Go past 2 Corinthians into the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 21. This is a question that I often ask people who advocate this idea of work salvation. And by the way, let me say this. Some people think they don't believe in work salvation, and they do. If you believe that you have to repent of your sins to be saved, you believe in work salvation. Because if I have to stop sinning in order to be saved, you just told me I've got to do a work to be saved. And people will sometimes say, well, don't you believe the Bible says that you've got to repent of your sins? Show me in the Bible where this phrase is found, repent of your sins. The Bible doesn't say it. Oftentimes people will say, well, let me show you. And they'll take me to a verse that uses the word repent, but it never says of your sins. Because, see, the Bible says that repenting is a turning. See, an atheist that doesn't believe in God, they have to repent of that belief system. They have to repent of not believing in God in order to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. A Muslim who believes that they are going to go to wherever they go to based on their righteousness, they have to turn away from that belief system. They have to quit believing on their false religion to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, yes, they are repenting, but do they have to quit smoking? To be saved? Do they have to quit drinking to be saved? Do they have to quit, you know, whatever to be saved? No. Because as soon as you tell someone you have to repent of your sins, you just added a work to salvation. How about this? Losing your salvation. People say, oh, no, no, no. You're not saved by the way you live your life, but if you do something bad, then you'll lose your salvation or God will take it away. Well, hold on a second. So I'm saved as long as I don't fill in the blank? I'm saved as long as I don't kill somebody? I'm saved as long as I don't rob a bank. I'm saved as long as I don't, you know, do something terrible. And they'll say, well, if you, if you repent of it. Okay, but what if that's the last thing I do? I'm saved as long as I don't perform that action. Here's the problem with that main thing, with that philosophy is, if I'm saved as long as in this a dependence on me, then it's not Jesus Christ, it's still me. You understand what I'm saying? As long as I'm saved, as long as I don't commit suicide, as long as I don't commit murder, as long as I don't, you know, uh, whatever then that salvation is still dependent on me. See, you cannot earn it based on your works before you get saved, and you can't lose it based on your works after you get saved. And people say, well, when you got saved, when you got saved, you know, Jesus forgave you of your past sins, and Jesus forgave you of your present sins. But, you know, the things you do in the future, then you might lose your salvation. Here's why that thing's so silly. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died over 2,000 years ago. None of us, I don't think there's anybody here, that's 2,000 years old. Now, some of you may look like it. <laughs> you know, no, nobody, you know, here's the funny thing about that, that concept is when Jesus died on the cross for my sins, guess what? All my sins were in the future. He died for my past, my present, my future. He's paid for all of them. Here's what you got to understand. You either believe that you are saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, or, or you believe that you're saved by your own works. 
And even if you add some works to what Jesus did, it becomes all your works. Are you there in Galatians? Look at two, chapter 2, verse 21. Notice what the Bible says. Galatians 2.21 says this, I do, not frustrate, I do not frustrate the grace of God. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Now notice what he calls frustrating the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Then Christ, then Christ is dead in vain. Do you understand what that verse just said? Here's what he said. If I could repent of my sins enough, if I could go to church enough, if I could read the Bible enough, if I could get baptized enough, if I could do enough good things, if righteousness came by keeping the law, then why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus even come? Why do we have a Christmas? Why do we have an Easter? If I could do it by just living a good life, and go, then he could have just said, here's what you do. Do these things, and if you do them, repent of your sins, live a good life, try to do right. If you mess up, repent real quick before you die, you know, and, and just try to live right. If, I, if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Because the only way that I could be saved is that God, who's holy and pure, became man and took my sins, and I took his righteousness. I was talking with this Jehovah's Witness, and he would not let me get a word in. It was so frustrating. He was frustrating the grace of me. You know, just because, like, I was just, it was so, and he kept asking questions. I can't stand it when somebody asks you a question, then they won't let you answer the question. And, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in hell. And here's what he kept saying. He kept saying, I don't understand how you can reconcile these two thoughts. I don't understand how you can reconcile a God that loves us, a God that created us, a God that wants the best for us, and then a God that would send someone to hell and have them be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't understand how you can, you know, reconcile those two thoughts. And I kept trying to talk to him. And I kept trying to squeeze in a word, but he, he just literally would not stop talking to the point where I just had to, like, walk away, and he kept talking. But what I wanted to say to him was this. Here's how you reconcile a God that loves you and a holy God that will send sinners to hell, it's Jesus Christ. Because, see, Jesus satisfied the punishment for my sin. And Jesus satisfied the grace of a loving God. It's Jesus. See, the problem with that Jehovah's Witness is he was in the place of Jesus. He thought it was his righteousness, and, of course, his righteousness is not good enough, so let's just be an ostrich and put our our head in the sand and pretend that there is no hell. But you've got to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Isaiah 64. It's an interesting thought that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Say, well, I'm just going to give give my best and see if that's good enough. It's not good enough. It's filthy. It's worthless. It won't work. It won't get you in. You must have the righteousness of God. Go to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, look at verse 8. Here's another famous passage, and and we'll we'll be finishing up soon. Isaiah 64, look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay, and Thou our potter, and we all the work of Thy hand. Here we get this concept of the fact that, and this is, this is talked about throughout the Bible, that we are the clay, God is the potter. The idea is, the illustration is, that there is a man who's forming clay into a vessel, and, and what he's saying is, you and I are that clay that God is forming. We are the work of his hand, all right? Now, you're there in the book of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 29 and look at verse number 16 because you find this idea throughout the Bible. We're going to look at them quickly, and we'll be done here in a minute. Isaiah 29 and verse 16 talks about this idea of the potter and the clay, all right? But here's what, there's two concepts 
when you think about God as a potter and you and I as a clay. The first one is this. You must acknowledge the potter and his presence. Because notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 29 and verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. Now notice he says, For shall the work say to him that made it, He made me not? Or shall the thing form say to him that framed it, He had no understanding? He's saying, is a pot made out of clay that was formed by the potter then going to open up its mouth and say, he didn't make me. And here's what he's saying. God made us. God is our creator. The, The first concept of this thing, of the potter, is that you must acknowledge the potter's presence. It is God that created you. He created you for his purpose. You are his tool. You are his pot made for his use. And, and we've got to, you know, and I, and I know I'm preaching to the choir and all of you say, well, I, I believe in God. I understand that. But li- listen to me very carefully. And I'm not trying to offend any of you. I'm, I'm trying to help you out. Some of you have kids in public school. And I, don't, and I, and I understand that some of you, you, you can't get your kids out of public school. Just because of the way things worked out, that, that's, that's your lot in life. And I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Da- God, Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar and he stood for righteousness. But you've got to understand this. In the public school, your kids are being brainwashed into not believing in God. And they're being brainwashed every day. They are being told that they are not created by a creator, that they are just, you know, came from a monkey or they came from whatever their new fangled ideas are now. And, and in your Christian homes, you need to be fighting against that, especially if your kids are being educated outside of your home. You need to just be actively fighting, actively reading, memorizing the Bible with your kids, teaching them about the fact that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Go to, go to the book of... Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're there in the book of Isaiah, just the very next book over. And by the way, if you're, if you're homeschooling your kids, make sure you teach them the same thing. Make sure you just focus on, on the curriculum and, and you're, not, you're not leaving out uh, the word of God. Jeremiah 18. Look at verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. Verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay... Was marred. Now I want you to notice that word marred means disfigured. It was ruined. It was, it was messed up. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in. You see that word in? The hand of the potter. I want you to understand. It says it was marred in the hand of the potter. It does not say it was marred by the hand of the potter. And here's what you need to understand. When you got saved, when you came to Jesus Christ, you came as a marred vessel. Sin took its toll on your life and on my life. We are disfigured, speaking in in the sense of the fact that we are not in the way that God created us. You came with problems. You came with sin. You came with the effect of sin on your life. And here's what God wants to do in your life. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemeth good to the potter to make it. He wants to remake you. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, is what the Bible says. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God is working on you. God wants to make, because you, when I came to Jesus, I came, yeah, not my righteousness, only his righteousness, but I came marred and disfigured. I came marred and ruined. And that potter says, I'm just going to kind of start over. And we're going we're gonna to take, we're going to smooth this thing out. See, God is working on you, and God is working 
on me. Look at verse number 5 there, Jeremiah 18, 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? He said, when you are marred and when you are ruined, when you are disfigured because of sin, when you've got problems in your life, cannot, cannot not I, as the creator, just mold you and reform you and create you and try to do something new in you? Go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. We're, we're, we'll finish up right here, Romans chapter number 9. Romans 9 is another passage that talks about this idea of the potter and the clay, Romans 9. Brother Daryl actually preached a, a sermon about this at the men's preaching night. He did a great job. I'm going to steal all his points right now because he did such a good job. Romans chapter 9. Look at verse number 20. Romans 9.20. Notice what the Bible says. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? That word repliest means talk back. He said, why are you talking back against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed him, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor. Now, here, there's two thoughts here, okay? One is God's working on you. God's trying to make you better. God's trying to make you not be marred. And, and this is the idea. You and I, that's, it goes back, why, why do we read the Bible every day? Why do we come to church? Why do we get under preaching the Word of God? Because there are problems with my vessel that God wants to use His Word to work on me. But also, there's an idea here of contentment. You know, do you know that God made you? You know that you are fearfully, wonderfully made? You know that we were made in the image of God? You know that God created you? Today we live in this society where people want to say, well, if you don't have a certain hair color, or you don't have a certain color of eyes, or if you don't have a certain shape, or if you don't have a certain height, you know, or if you don't have a certain whatever, you know, then you don't. But listen to me. God made you. God made me. Why do we reply against God and say, why hast thou made me thus? Why do we complain and say to God, why have you done this in my life? Or why have you brought these circumstances? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's finance. Whatever it is. But when God does a work in us, why do we talk back? Can a pot of clay talk back to the one that formed it and say, why did you make me a pot? Why did you make me a bowl? Why did you make me thus? See, the idea of the potter and the clay is this, that we, yes, acknowledge the fact that there is a creator, but we also accept his will for our life. We also accept the fact that he created me, he placed me here, he made me the way he wants, and he will do his will in my life. And what he is doing, he is doing to fashion me and form me to create, to to fix the mar, the disfigurement that came as a result of sin. You're there in Romans 9, look at at Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 this is a famous verse. You know, read verse 20. Let's read verse 28 so you get the context. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That's a great verse. And we go to that verse a lot for encouragement. But there's a few things that this verse doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says all things work together for good. Sometimes people want to read this verse and say, well, God said everything in my life is going to be good. That's not what God said. God did not say that everything in your life would be good, but he said that everything would work together for good. And it's not for everyone, it's for them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now notice verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The Calvinists love this. He he predestinated you. Okay, well notice what he predestinated you. To be conformed to the image of his son. 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He foreknew that you would get saved, so he predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son. See, here's what God wants to do in your life, and here's what God wants to do in my life. Every day he wants to work a little more on us. He wants to sand us down a little bit. He wants to mold us a little bit. And the goal is to get you to stop looking so much like you and to start looking more like the Lord Jesus Christ. To conform us to the image of his son. How do you get there? By acknowledging the fact that you are not your own, that you were created, and accepting what he has done for you, and accepting the fact that he created you. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.